Hi, I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are authors, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what's the author responding to? What are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Jin Yu Chong, the author of the novel Flux. His work has appeared in the Southern Review, the Florida Review, Craft, and Salamander. He received the Oren Robert Perry Burke Award for fiction from the Southern Review and a special mention in the 2022 Pushcart Prize Anthology, as well as recognition from the Sewanee Review, Tin House, and Zoe Trope, All Story. He received an MFA from Columbia University and is an editorial assistant at One Story. Thank you for agreeing to do the interview, and please thank Maya for coordinating and sending me your advanced reader copy. It's my understanding that you'll release the book in March, is that right? Yes, March 21. Okay, that's really exciting. Um, so I want to begin with your novel, and when I read it, I thought about the multiple discourses that you're outlining in your book. So there are technological startups and they're fraudulent spokespersons promises of the future, media layoffs and conglomerate buyouts, celebrity scandal, and I should say, to the Nepple Baby discourse kind of creeps into um, queerness, nostalgia, and this very idea of belonging and representation. I found it to be a very ambitious and timely novel. So I'd like to ask you how Flux came to be, what was on your mind when you're writing it, and what do you hope it communicates? Thank you so much for that question. I feel like the novel came very piecemeal to me. And a lot of the themes and topics that, that you've just uh, summarized, they came at different points. The first one was probably the idea of like the infectiousness of a scam throughout culture and, and the ease with which it can be bought by people. Uh, I had just read the nonfiction book, Bad Blood by John Carrier, which was about the fall of Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, which is a story. It's a story that's still sort of captivating people because news items still appear about like the way that um, she was able to fool everybody. And, and now how she's facing repercussions for things that happened so many years ago. That was probably jumping off point. I found that story captivating. It was just insane to me the way that nobody questioned the the validity of anything that she was doing all they saw was the money and the magazine covers and you know because of that ascribed to her this kind of legitimacy that had no basis at all that was really fascinating to me the way that culture and society consistently does that people who are just completely undeserving of it and that was probably where i started off the parts about you know the influence of pop culture and television and and sort of the virality of celebrity all of those things came at different points but um i think i started the novel not really wanting to say anything about culture or society on the whole i wanted to just kind of write a crime novel and then it turned into something a lot more literary probably because I was writing it as my MFA thesis, um, and I was taking chapters of it to workshop and hearing 
feedback that I think pushed me in that sort of direction, which I'm glad it did it because it, it allowed me to incorporate all the, all of so much more than it would have if it were just, you know, a crime novel. How, how long did the drafting take? I think I have kind of a strange process because I don't really work on drafts for the longest time. And I kind of find myself putting it off as long as I possibly can and sticking to this very weird kind of crazy outline that has maybe passages that I've already written or descriptions or, you know, pieces of dialogue that I feel like are compelling. And this outline turned out to be something like 30 or 40 pages, uh, which I wrote and worked on over probably two and a half years and without writing a single word of the draft really. And, uh, this was now 2021 in January when I decided I would try to actually write the draft. And from January to April, I finished the whole draft. In about wow. And, and that was based on your very comprehensive outline? Yes. Wow. I get very stressed out by um, trying to improvise while writing. So I uh-huh. like to have everything in place so that... Uh-huh. Nothing is really surprising. I don't really find much room to uh, kind of improvise. I I know a lot of writers have no outline and are able to spin these amazing things from just a blank page, but I don't think I'm that good. And so I try to have it as much as possible planned out beforehand. Well, that's really exciting to hear the genealogy of it. So I take it when you said it started out as a crime novel. So... So I I didn't mention it, but true crime, was that kind of on your mind too as you were drafting your outline and then the eventual novel? I'm not sure. Do we call the Elizabeth Holmes case a true crime novel or is that considered true crime? It's like you know, nobody dies in yeah. relation to those and it doesn't become, you know, kind of any in, in any way sordid or right. kind of grotesque or things like that mm-hmm. that I feel like a lot of true crime tends to be. But um, I wanted to do that for the yeah. novel. I wanted yeah. to incorporate like murder and kind of secrets and and just uh, that sort of thing, which I think echoes out in in the the, the way that I wrote the, the fictional television show that, yeah. that first throughout. I was totally looking at the way that people tell those stories and, and right. have it just be very obscured and moody. Uh-huh. And capturing that kind of feeling yeah. was important. There is a question that I want to ask you. Uh, it was about this idea of genre. So the way you began the novel, it almost reminded me of Charles U. Chinatown. But then there were the other genres that you mixed in with it. So um, I wanted to ask about, I don't, I don't know if a lot of writers even like this genre question. Some people kind of make a face when I ask it. When the reader eventually reads your novel, they'll see that there are three narratives they're the stories of Bo, Brandon, and Blue. And and the way you write their time on it, it oscillates between past, present, and future, and you don't really know what's going on until the very, very end. So I wonder what your thoughts are about when you have to describe the genre. Are you asked often, do you write science fiction or speculative fiction, and do you consider uh, flex to be somewhere hybrid of the two genres? That's a, such a good question. I wrote this novel in an MFA, and 
as we all know, like uh, a lot of MFAs are geared almost like, you know, militantly toward literary fiction and yeah. everything you do is only looked at in that lens. And a lot of genre gets kind of looked down on by upgoers and also professors. And so I think I was always pushed in the direction of trying to do a strictly very literary fiction kind of thing while almost pushing back against the way that it could be sci-fi or speculative. Coming out of the MFA and actually publishing the thing and, and realizing the way that other people were writing about it and talking about it and describing it, the genre of like science fiction or speculative, and uh, it's kind of opened my eyes for sure. And maybe the takeaway that I have is that it really doesn't really seem to matter. People call it different things, I think, just to try and, and categorize it. Um, but a lot of that appears to be just marketing decisions, you know, the way that it can be, it can be organized on a bookshelf or depending on who to reach out to for a blurb or, or a bookseller or how you describe that novel. It seems to be just marketing kind of forward conversation to talk about genre. I feel like it's a bit of everything, which I think makes it literary. I feel like there are literary novels out there that choose to sort of categorize themselves in a way that could be different to, to, to someone else reading it. Mm. Um, and that's okay. It's, it's just, you know, I think it's an attempt to simplify things so that yeah. when you write about it, and you have 50 words to write about it because that's your word limit in an article. It makes it easier for that to happen. And I don't think, I don't think genre is, or, or categorization of genre is that important to how you, how you consume a book. It seems very kind of separate and in the more sales yeah. publicity world than it really is in like your personal experience of, of what it is as a reader. So if I can ask this question, when, you were drafting this for your MFA project. I'm curious to know what your peers' responses were. Did they ask you questions that you found yourself rolling your eyes about? Was it about genre? Was it about? It was an interesting thing because, you know, the novel starts with this show, which is taken, it's taken by the main character, Brandon, to be this like hallmark of Asian representation. He puts it on this golden pedestal and, and and is constantly justifying its decisions and its place in society as this like amazing thing that, that moved a lot of conversation forward. Um, and then you get into the show and once you experience it a little bit, my workshop read only the first few chapters when this was happening. And they uh, kind of brought up the fact that like this show isn't very progressive. Like it's not very... It's not very forward representationally. Yeah. It's kind of racist. It still comes back on stereotypes and things like that. And I think I uh, I remember listening to that feedback for the first time, and I was saying, "Wow, like that's so disappointing." Because I I, I kind of wanted it to be at least a little bit forward, or, or to be able to portray it in some sort of good. And then, mm -hmm. you know, that took on a life of its own as the novel went on, and I mm -hmm. realized that having the show be backwards and 
having Brandon be kind of blind to its imperfections and the way that it's still kind of problematic was really good for the character because it showed the way that he was ignoring all of the problems with it, which I think fandoms do all the time on the internet. There's selective outrage over things. They kind of choose to not speak about certain things that would make their their whatever, their idol or their their interest kind of look bad in terms of the media. That was such an interesting thing to to explore that I don't think I had set out to do when I first um, started the novel. So the feedback, particularly about that in the workshop, kind of hurt in the beginning, but it turned into a really great thing that, yeah. that kind of morphed into life in its own. Well, it was my understanding that that Raider, I'm trying to look through my notes. Was it part of the 80s? Was it was it supposed to be yeah. it was supposed to be dated though, right? And then I remember, um, was it part two when they were talking about the actual company and someone mentioned Back to the Future? So I actually felt like the, a lot of the artifacts and the discourse surrounded it was pretty timely because then you wove into um, the discourses of Me Too and the politics Nepple babies. I actually really, really worked out very wonderfully at the end. Yeah. I I I think I I just took a lot of things from the real world and kind of ripped them at lines and, yeah. and turned them into these fictional kind of facsimiles of, of very recognizable things that people be able to latch on to. That's mm-hmm. that's always been super interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe as a follow-up question, now that we kind of talked about the genre thing or the, the in-betweenness or maybe the ambivalence of genre, I wanted to ask about the title. Because I'm not spoiling it if I tell listeners that Flux is, is the company name. It's, that's not a spoiler, right? Okay. Um, so I was thinking a lot about the significance of the title. Conceptually, I thought it might refer to the master physics. And also thought the idiom influx, which echoes in some of the ways you describe your characters, especially through Brandon, I, I felt because um, we're reminded repeatedly that Brandon's mother is Korean and his father is white. And he also um, doesn't self-identify. He he has relationships with both men and women, most obvious with, um, oh no, I forgot his partner's name, men and his partner. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but he's really resistant on actually giving himself labels and categorizations. We kind of talked about this, that your genre and your tone shift quite a bit. Um, though the stories might seem disjointed, they're not. So what did you want the title to capture? And how does it frame this kind of world that you're building throughout the, the novel's progression? I think I got very lucky with this. This is always kind of an embarrassing question to answer because I just thought that the word flux was very, it was just like a cool word. And it's one of the coolest words I've ever heard in my life. And it's short and pithy. And I don't think there are many books that even mention this, mention the word ever. Uh, There's a couple out there, but not so many. The only time I'd ever heard it was actually, in Back to the Future when, you know, the <laughs> flux capacity is the thing that makes tactical possible. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a dorky answer, but that's that's probably how it started. 
But I also mm-hmm. do think that what you say about, you know, something being in flux is is a moment of, of transience and, and kind of commutability through multiple barrier categorizations. I think that's that's a key facet of, of who Brandon is. And I was thinking a lot about Invisible Man by Ralph mm-hmm. Ellison. And I was also thinking about um, probably my favorite book that I've ever read, which is uh, Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen. The way that the two of those protagonists are nameless and almost kind of even faced, they, they just reject any and all descriptive category at everything. And as a result, feel completely lost at times. I thought that was poetic and gorgeous and lent itself to such, you know, to such outward turmoil that mm-hmm. um, that made it so central to Brendan's character as as a person. It so I would say that all of it kind of fell into place, which was very lucky for me because I wasn't really thinking about any of it when I chose the name. I was just trying to find a cool name that that was similar to Theranos or Apple mm-hmm. or something like that. And Yeah. And... That makes a lot of sense. Somewhere you talked about when um when the Lev was telling Brent kind of like the what would you call it? Not really HR, but the story of the company. He even mentioned Apple being iconic and they were trying to be part of the, the iconic innovate innovative world building and like um, a marketing scheme. You know, those parts with Brandon were so dreamlike. Like the parties and stuff, it was just, it seemed so surreal to me. I had to go back and reread those passages. I didn't think it was actually happening in real time. It's just like when he's trying to go to work and then things happen, I thought, it was just, it was such a, it's just a very cinematic experience, actually. Like the way that you cut into the scenes. I hope I'm not misreading it, but they really, those those moments where um, Brandon's trying to figure out what's going on at work, I think that kind of element of mystery was really fascinating to me. That makes me really happy. Those were the toughest parts to write because I needed to show the way that Brandon was using his grip on reality, but I didn't want it to be too obvious. Mm -hmm. And um, I was thinking a lot about the way that you would kind of experience this on screen you know, it makes me happy when people describe it, the book as cinematic, because I, I've always kind of envisioned it that way. And to portray, especially those chapters where he goes to work again and again okay. and again, he meets all the same people who kind uh-huh. of say all the same things to him uh-huh. the morning after morning. That was, um, it was really tough to write, but I, I, I feel like, yeah, it was, it, it was important to portray that, especially because you know, of all the weirdness that happens later. Yeah. There there needed to be yeah. some signal. Yeah. Well, I, I'm happy that I read it that way because I just thought that I was missing something. And um, so speaking about that kind of surrealism, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea of experimentation and technology, which are so rampant throughout the three narratives. There's a lot of experimentation in the book based on neurology, memories, and stories. And I found that most prevalent in blue stories He's unable to speak, but his implant allows him to communicate. I'm curious what kind of news stories or articles you read about the brain, and why do you think it's so essentialized in our understanding of personhood and um, stories about technological advancements? 
That's a wonderful question. I kind of find myself going back to shows like Black Mirror that seem to take this weird idea or this kind of hypothesis about humanity and, and manifest it in like a technology or a, a certain very realistic looking facet of the world that that is bent in some way or is just kind of off kilter, very foreign to us as real people living in the real world, but to them is completely normal. I think that's, it, it's just incredible to me. The, the way that I feel like a lot of, especially kind of prestige speculative television that because of the visual medium and, and the way that, you know, we process information like that are able to kind of take a strange sort of hypothesis about human nature or society and kind of warp it into very realistic looking facets of a fictional world. That has always been really interesting to me to kind of portray a certain theme or to make a certain statement about things. And it seemed like a really easy way to incorporate that into the book while also kind of signal to you that Blue's timeline takes place in a slightly different place than the other two. And it kind of renders it in a different tone or a different kind of hue. That was probably what I was going with. And I also feel like it was important to show the way that technology is embraced by people and kind of the way that people allow it currently in the world to just define their lives, become very singularized with it is kind of a scary notion to me. And um, it's something that's played with in a lot of, in a lot of books and movies that I've seen to the extent of like body modification or kind of the augmenting of your own humanhood with technology. It's a scary thing that I feel like we are headed for anyway, but I think it says a lot about society that, you know, it feels like so widely accepted already and to spin it into what it becomes in Blue's timeline is, is, you know, just a willful sort of exaggeration of that. Brandon's story was first, and then we have Blue. Did you do it in that kind of order? Is it Brandon, Blue, and then... Was it like a pattern like that, or did it just depend on the kind of storyline that you wanted to create to then expand on the other characters as well? It was originally very even. Um, the three storylines were supposed to switch off in three chapters the entire way. In that iteration of what I was thinking, all three narrators spoke in the first person, and it was supposed to be three distinct voices. I kind of did away with that during the outlining because I realized that the young kid, Bo, and the older Blue were sort of auxiliary to the main storyline, which is Brandon. And there just wasn't enough to do in those minor two storylines without kind of needing to expand on the first one. Another reason was probably because it's really hard to write in three different voices. Yeah. And um, I, I feel like I set out to do too much with that one. And so... I like the idea that Bo and Blue are narrated in third person because it's almost as if Brandon is telling those stories himself. 
and is kind of kind of also the narrator of those yeah. of of the two smaller storylines. Which you know, I feel like it might be a secret or a spoiler or something, but you know, the three we are very connected in in, yeah. in many different ways. So it it felt thematically correct to do. Yeah, in, in the way you're describing it. So maybe go and their testimonies supplement the main storyline in the, in a sense, kind of like oh totally. So if we were to think of your book as a mystery, it all comes to a head, you know, at least like the last three testimonies. And I felt like they were very distinct voices, especially both chapters really broke my heart because it's like a child narrating and it, and it, it's not jarring, but it really did offset the kind of, um, the more adult tones of the other two characters. I had a lot of feel feelings when I read, would read both kind of, kind of like narrating what he didn't really understand, but you just had to trust that there was something tragic that happened and he was trying to make sense of it. I think those were my favorite parts, actually. That's too weird to say as an adult reading kids' testimony. I think those were my favorites, too, partially because of that's the only real part of the book that I myself have, you know, I've been eight years old before. I haven't really been Brandon yet. Like I'm, I'm sort of Brandon is his age group currently, but I've never, I, I don't have a life like him, but I have yeah. had a life like Bose. And so I feel closest personally to, to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also because Bose chapters are interspersed with, with the television show, which were one hundred percent my favorite parts to write. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, why talk about the television show now that we mentioned it? So, I I really love the the kind of meta narrative that the show sets out to be. So, like we discussed, it was part of this eighties discourse. Um, it's it's my understanding it was a procedural cop show, right? Called Raider. Um, and it started an Asian actor. I said he is a terrible person. I don't know. I'm not sure, but he didn't seem like a very good person. And throughout the show, the, the characters are really kind of overcome by the sense of nostalgia through the show. And you seem to be analyzing the representation and identity politics through the separation of the media artifact in itself and then the person narrating it. Because um, Brandon, I think Brandon actually does a, does a really good job analyzing his feelings about it and then also using the current discourse cursive lens to talk about something you know dated and also the actor who plays plays the character you pronounce it Holbert as in the French way or I'm not sure how to pronounce his name I would probably pronounce it yeah the French okay okay he he so we also kind of follow the trials of his very kind of blown up celebrity life and I want to ask you about the you throughout the book. The narrator addresses you, meaning the character, not that. Can you give us some insights on this kind of this, this stylistic decision? Why is the you a fictional character? That's an amazing question. Thank you. Um, I think everybody has a you that they speak to in their mind. I think a lot of people who lose their parents kind of speak to their parents in that way. I know both of my parents do that. Um, it might be for younger people, someone that they really idolize or someone that they've spun into this like kind of fictional version. It could be even, you know, a sibling that they have or a friend that they have. For Bo, 
And Brandon, he doesn't really have anybody in his life. Like he's completely alone. And so he has to turn in a lot of ways that I feel like this new sort of Gen Z online generation has had to do during COVID. He's the only person you can turn to is this fictional character. Um, and I think the danger with that is when you have this deep, very personal, very all-consuming dialogue with something that doesn't exist, you start to kind of ascribe to it characteristics that, you know, have no basis in in what the original thing was. And you kind of turn it into something that you want it to be. Um, I feel like Brandon does this a ton because, you know, Raider, the character, is kind of flawed and, and uh, in every way just this random thing that he happened to pick upon, but is on into like this hero and father figure to Brandon that he does completely by himself and, and as a product of his isolation. That was really fascinating to me to, to be able to speak to this like idealized version of Raider and then the real version of Raider and then the actor who plays him and have them be three different things which, you know, is very complicated to think about. It stressed me out to no end when I was writing because uh, it was just a lot to hold in your mind at once. Um, but I think it says something really interesting about an individual's perception of reality versus what it actually is versus what other people perceive that person to be going through and um, all of the ways in which those various points of view intersect and it seemed like the best way to do it uh, it seemed like when brandon was um providing the analysis for the reader that was that was where what you were saying earlier about fandom that seemed to be echoed throughout brandon's kind of realization that you can't really appreciate something in today's terms and discourse and conceptual language was it Brandon who compared liking Raider to um, people defending the the art of Woody Allen films? That was That's something right. like that. Yeah, yeah but... I thought it was really kind of really the perennial question of the death of the author. I thought you captured through Brandon very well, and and I'm glad you brought up Bo because for a minute I thought Bo and Brandon were the same person, except Bo was a child and Brandon um, was an adult version of Bo. But I know now that's unlikely. I think it was in the middle part where I asked myself, is Bo Brandon as a kid? So that was my initial impression of um, that kind of like the fluidity, but the organic fluidity of how you you chose to intersperse their their different timelines and stories. So I want to ask you about this character that you name. Is it Io? Io? Is that how you pronounce your name? Okay, Io is Emsworth. And... The gender politics of tech entrepreneurs. I felt like you did that very well comparing her and Lev because the reader will know that Io is the CEO, but it's Lev that has a lot of, um, he's the one that speaks a lot. We don't really see Io. She's like this mythical figure. The way you describe her as very glamorous and very interested in her appearance, I think that's very, it's quite like how people imagine Elizabeth Holmes, I imagine. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know what, what you think about the tech intersection in the story you're attempting to share 
that are being Korean and how languages can be flattened in this kind of techno-capitalist world because Brennan's kind of just thrusted into this surreal company and he's trying to make sense of it all and um and he has a lot of unanswered questions even till the end I feel I wonder what what you're what you're doing with um this this discourse of tech capitalism and then the idea of representation as it plays out in that tech scene Hey, that's a wonderful question. I guess I'll start with IO because she is supposed to be Elizabeth Holmes in many mm-hmm. ways, but I've always been disappointed with her because she, I think we know the truth now, and it's that she was just kind of stupid and overly confident um, and had no idea what she was doing. And <laughs> parts of those things. But, <laughs> Parts of those things exist in this Io character, mm-hmm. but I feel like Io is a lot more self-aware uh-huh. than Elizabeth is, and you can see in the way that you know she plays into this image of her as like a sex symbol, and mm-hmm. you know poses on magazines with like her legs open and her yeah. like a cigarette and all of those yeah. things. She's completely aware of it, and I feel like uses that to her advantage because of the way that. Society is just inherently sexist and focused on the male gaze. And that's the only way in which I feel like men hear women in any case, um, which is, you know, the upsetting part. But the way that Io kind of recognizes that, uses that to her advantage and gets things done because of it seemed like a really savvy thing for her to do that I feel like set her apart from uh, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Holmes in yeah. some ways. Techno-capitalism is very interesting to me because it is like almost a new religion in our society. It's like this thing that people buy into and and completely and kind of build up their entire personalities around now. Like I can think of a ton of people who had no business, you know, in crypto or uh, all of these weird things but now it's like their entire life and the way that elon musk has these fans that defend every single thing he does call him a genius in in every way and there's no proof of it obviously because he's a trainer i feel like that's kind of what religion can sometimes turn into is this kind of blind worship um which was it was a bleak direction to take but it seems more and more true these days. Okay. So, thing is, the way you wrote Io, she's such a fan fatale. And it's funny you mentioned that she is supposed to be an iteration of Elizabeth Holmes because I remember this one happened in 2017 or 18. People were saying that Elizabeth Holmes was kind of doing the Steve Jobs wardrobe. I remember like her time and her other business cover, she would wear the black turtleneck. I think that gender politics was still very chauvinistic and misogynist if they were comparing her to being um, Steve Jobs. But I was just, I don't know, I felt like she was a glam, a glam lady. I didn't like her, but I always enjoyed a few times that she did come on screen. Or I said screen as if it's a movie, in, in the novel, in the novel. So it seemed like you had a lot of fun writing her, though, because she was just ridiculous. Like, didn't she and Brandon meet in the bathroom at the end? It was the most fun to write the dialogue, the uh-huh. words that come out of the 
mouth and also yeah. to look left because it's like they're they're well they're obviously crazy they only yes. do whatever they say they they like are deaf to other people mm -hmm. and worship their themselves and mm -hmm. anything they say and so as a result just like spew nonsense yeah and, um you know exudes such confidence that it almost feels legitimate but it's mm -hmm. and right. uh I, I can think of a lot of people who do that like in politics and yeah. in tech uh -huh. a lot of public figures who engage in that kind of just total nonsense but people eat it up do you have friends who work in the tech tech scene i do yes <laughs> did I've you gotten, ask like you know uh, a couple tidbits that i've been, been able to gather informed those two characters a lot yeah <laughs> and you you all are still friends Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good. Yes. <laughs> Jinu, I don't know if it's too soon to ask this last question. I, I'm curious to know if you're, if you're working on a follow-up or if, you, if there's anything that you can share on any kind of upcoming project. Oh, yes. This is an interesting thing because I admit that I was pretty sad when I was working on this book. It made mm -hmm. me... It, it drained me in a lot of ways to, to write about, you know, childhood trauma and isolation and feelings of disenfranchisement, disillusionment, those kinds of things. It kind of just took a lot out of me. And so I don't know if I would ever return to these characters or this world because I think it says what it needs to say. And, and it was a lot of, you know, sacrifice, like, to... To, to do it. And so I found myself wanting to do something a lot more joyous. And that's probably the direction I'm going to take with a new book, which I haven't really started, but I know that I, I want to capture a mood that is completely different from this one and to have it be happy and, and sort of uh, fun to write. Mm -hmm. I think I'm, I, yeah, I'm looking for something that's more fun Uplifting. to write than this book. <laughs> Jimmy, thank you so much. I hope the conversation wasn't draining in a sense because I had a lot of my own emotional thoughts reading it. And I, and I hope that the reviews have been positive and I hope people have been considerate of your efforts. It's been so far very yeah. nice. Okay, yeah. yeah, I'm glad. Thank you again, Jinua. Whenever you're ready and your new project's coming out, let me know. I'd love to have you back on to talk about to, about your new book. That would be fantastic. I thank you so much for reading it and for, for thinking so productively about, about everything I was trying to do. It means the world. I enjoyed reading it. I, I meant it when I said it was ambitious and emotional, and I, and I can't understand. I, I didn't realize... For you how draining it was and so i'm glad that i was able to interview you and it kind of gives me a different perspective it's always nice to hear the author's kind of writing process you know because it does kind of get an insight and changes should change readers minds too because it takes a lot of effort to write something as skillfully as you do with a lot of storyline emotions at play it's not i don't think the whole entire book is weak and gloomy yet but it 
I wouldn't say it's positive, but I hope people give it a chance and the reviews are great for you when it officially comes out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janine. So have a good rest of the day. I'll keep in touch and good luck with everything. And I really, really hope your promotional tour goes well. Thank you. Have a good night, Janine. Oh, well, have a good rest of the afternoon. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.